I don't have another way of saying it uh, other than to quote Martin Luther King. When he said, hey, the arc of uh, history is long, but it bends toward justice. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I'm thrilled to have Randy Harward here. He is, listen to this one, retired, number one, but an advisor. And he's going to talk about why advising is so amazing. I want that job in in maybe some years. He has worked at Patagonia, Under Armour. He's an advisor at Stanford's High Impact Technology Fund. And he's also going to share with us some um, pretty big learnings that he's had in the last year. Welcome, Randy. Happy to be here. Good to see you. I'm so glad you're here too. Thank you for your time. Randy, give our listeners some background on you. Where did you grow up? Uh, Only child, siblings, give us some background. I grew up in um, Miami, Florida, more specifically Hialeah, which uh, is right there by the Hialeah horse race track. Okay. (laughs) Um, I have no idea where that is. Is that like... (laughs) Not on the coast, but in the in the center. Yeah, just a little inland from Miami. Yeah. Okay. And um, oh yeah, you said Miami, doy. Come on, Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. One of uh, seven boys. (gasps) Um, Really? Yeah. uh, My what number? Oh, I'm the youngest. You're the baby. Yeah. So my my. uh, Next older brother was a very difficult birth for my mother, and she said, Lord, if uh, this kid comes out safe, I'll adopt a whole family. And so he did, and so she adopted my other brother. So I have three blood brothers, or the three of us, two blood brothers, and four uh, foster brothers. But it was a family of seven in a two-bedroom house. with uh, two of the kids in a converted place out in the garage and five of us in one room in, and we never knew that that was, that was normal to us. We didn't think it wasn't normal. Yeah. It was a lovely childhood. Wonderful. Miami is a wonderful place to grow up in the fifties and sixties. It was just fantastic. What was fantastic about it? I was beautiful. Of course, the climate, but, uh, uh, was fun. Um, my parents were both worked and they would leave a note on the refrigerator with uh, orders for each of us kids to go get dinner. So I would, in Florida, if you were under, at the time, if you were under 12, there was no uh, lobstering season. And so little kids could go out and lobster anytime they want. So I would ride my bike to the coast, go get lobster. My brothers would go get clams or oysters or go fishing and come home and be ready for mom and dad to cook. (laughs) True stories. This is crazy. Can't do it today, but back then it was a wonderful place. All right. So, so you're the baby of seven. You grew up a little bit outside of Miami, Florida. What did your, you said your, both your parents worked. What fields were they in? Oh, my father was a TV repairman for Sears. 
for 28 years. And my mom worked in Liberty City in Miami. If you know, it's a, it's a very low-income, predominantly black community. She worked in a dented can store as a cashier for years and uh, just loved that community. How did, okay, so I'm very curious. I mean, obviously you've, you've achieved a lot professionally. Uh, what was the driver behind that? Anything with growing up? Did you have dreams of making it big one day or? Um, my parents, uh, and I look back on this and just marvel at it. Uh, again, at the time you don't realize, uh, how, usual or unusual things are as a child but um they took us camping or boating i think every weekend that i can remember and um so i spent a lot of time in the natural environment and um my parents were both very inquisitive and um sort of had a learning uh teaching style that that, uh, you know, whenever you asked a question, they would try and make sure you got an answer and they would make you look at things and, you know, oh, look at this jellyfish or look at that stone or whatever. Mm. It was a very inquisitive, you know, they, they loved nature too. This led to me getting into biology and botany and, um, and I was working to, to become a ranger naturalist. Um, really? uh, as I got through high school and got into college, I was uh, I joined the uh, uh, executive committee of the uh, Sierra Club in Florida, which had a lot to do with some very important uh, preservations there. Uh, and I was on this biology career. And uh, the timing was terrible. For that, when I got out of school, um, there, the, the, the truth of it is they, there was probably 100 jobs uh, nationally and 50,000 people like me, right? So uh, it was just not the right time to be trying to become a, a ranger naturalist. But I had figured out a loophole, and that was that if you lived in a national park, uh, or in a national reserve, as they call them, uh, they weren't required to go to the National Registry of Applicants. They could hire locally first. And so I started working in the national parks. And uh, so I, I was a guide. I was a ski guide, a climbing guide. I ran the outdoor school at uh, in Yosemite, um, did some of the oh. ski school work there. I ran the climbing shop. Wait, so you and, moved across uh, country, though. You moved across yeah, country. Yeah, I was looking, I was looking Ever. for work in the national parks. I worked in Yellowstone for a couple of years um, during college. These are summer jobs. Then when I got out, I did move to Yosemite and try and get a job there. And uh, in the process, got into the outdoor industry. Uh, so I was in the shops and in the environment that was selling the original products that were going uh, that, that were being sold by the Patagonias and the and the uh, Chouinard equipments and the you know Randy, uh, what year North like faces. what around time frame is this? Uh, about nineteen seventy three, something like that, seventy four. 
Okay. And, um, and I never left that industry. So I've basically been, um, you always ask anyone who's in, in textiles, like somebody like me, they call us silverbacks, um, (laughs) at this age. Uh, you see another person like that and you go, how did you get into it? Cause you know, it wasn't intentional. Like you, you just sort of bump into textiles. Yeah. Um, that's different today. You find really sharp students who go to, you know, four year textile school. And, but the majority of people who have been in it a long time, that wasn't what they were intending to do. They, they sort of had another field and they got into it. It turns out a biology background was a perfect education for that role. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I've had great success doing uh, material innovation and development for 40 years. So can I just fast forward a little bit to Patagonia when you're working for Patagonia? Sure. What's your time frame in working for Patagonia and what's going on in the company at that time? It was about 97 or something like that. I think I joined okay. them. No, God, it had to be earlier than that, 87. And I was there 26 years. Um, company was relatively small, maybe $100 million or less. Um, How many employees? Less than 200. So I had been trying to get a job there for quite a while. Um, for, I think, eight years prior to that, I worked at a small um, uh, dealer of theirs called Western Mountaineering. Still the best place uh, you can get a down sleeping bag or jacket to this day. That's in San Jose, California. Oh, I bet you could give us some great recos. Oh, yeah. They still make the best. And they make them right there in San Jose. But... Uh, You know, it it was a small retail chain. I was the general manager, very minor uh, owner there. And um, I was looking to advance my career. And I ended up applying at Patagonia, but you could never get in. They had this 200-person limit, and they weren't going to grow any bigger. And What? Wait, I don't know this. Yeah, Yvonne Trenard was like, oh, I don't want to be a big, successful businessman. That's bad. Oh uh, and he's like, no, I don't want to grow like that. I want to stay small. And I was a part of a group of people where they finally broke that 200 person limit and said, okay, 250. And I was one of those 50 okay. uh, that got hired over the next year. And I ran uh, mail order uh, returns and that turned into oh, there's lots of quality problems. And, um, hey, Yvonne says, why don't you try and deal with those quality problems? And I was like, Yvonne, I don't know anything about quality. You need a quality professional. This is a growing company. And he's like, yeah, but you understand stuff. And uh, I think you're going to be great at it. And you got the passion for it. And I said, no. And we argued back and forth for, gosh, three days. And um, at one point he said, okay, geez. Take the job, but just don't do anything until you think you know what you're doing. And Stop. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, I said, how much time do I have? He goes, I don't know. Take a year. I don't care. So I did. And I took the job and I started traveling around the different experts and um, visiting different companies and um, Patagonia had quite a presence in Japan, so I spent quite a bit of time studying uh, quality and, and uh, kind of the retail environment in Japan. And 
I gradually had a point of view that I thought was pretty sharp, um, mainly by uh, one of my greatest mentors in my whole life, uh, W. Edwards Deming, which I many people think of as the father of quality. My my timing for him was perfect. He was becoming quite well known in the U.S., and I got to study under him pretty extensively, and um, still the backbone of my understanding of business and. Uh, and in all that, you know, I, w- I was working with product constantly and learning materials and construction and factories. And I've just been more and more and more in depth in that area for uh, 40 years. Just It just keeps growing in, in scope. Well, so you mentioned the big... sustainability work yeah. and stuff. It just is an outgrowth yeah. of that. So because, I mean, back then it wasn't termed sustainability, right? I mean, you guys were sort of the grandfathers of sustainability. You you all were the ones who were the pioneers around it. Yeah, and, and their, their um, instincts were pretty right on at Patagonia. They, they were trying not to grow. They just knew instinctively that, you know, whatever they did, if they grew and got bigger, they were just a bigger part of the problem. And they were trying to resist that. And to the extent that they did grow, they were always trying to see what's a smarter way to do that. Can we not be uh, jerks about this and try and figure out how to work a little more in harmony because their real passion was the preservation of wilderness. Really that's what they were into. And their, their mere existence was sort of in conflict with their overall goal to preserve wilderness. And so this conflict internally turned into their passion for trying to do things right. Did they know that there was a conflict around that or did it just well, organically did like, you know what I mean? No, like, they, they, have they assumed it. Around? Yeah, they assumed it. And, and, and a lot of what we began to call sustainability was the, and they were part of this is just coming to terms with the fact that business can't be at odds with earth or gosh, we're all screwed. Mm -hmm. So the only answer has to be, how do we bring business more in line with the holding capacity of planet earth? That's a big challenge, but if we can do it, then we will be sustainable. And that's where that term came from. And of course, it's been, you know, greenwashed and bastardized and people put the word sustainability on a lot of things, but it's largely true. A lot of what uh, we look at today as meaningful work to reduce the impact on the environment is business driven. Mm -hmm. All the harm is also business driven. So this conflict still exists. you, there's no like climbing into a cave and ignoring it. You have to try and turn your business into something that's going to uh, change the world. And if you can do that and you can get more companies doing it. And I think Patagonia finally reconciled it by thinking, okay, if we can do that and be an inspiration to other companies, then our impacts will be greater than ourselves. Even so, greater. okay, yeah. if we're going to be a company, let's do it right. And that's where that came from. Why the transition from Patagonia 
and then eventually going to Under Armour. What what was your why? Oh gosh, I was there a long time. Uh, <laughs> I was at Patagonia for twenty six years, and um, my wife and I were kind of done, you know, and mm-hmm. we were going to downsize, and I was retiring, and. I would do some consulting, which turns out I can do and do a lot of it now. Um, But we were going to downsize and just sort of slow down. Um, Do a lot more travel and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as I left Patagonia, Under Armour came knocking and I was not interested. And they had quite a... um, an effort to finally convince me to come on out. And I'm glad I did. It was a very legitimate uh, company, really very similar in its passions. Um, Their passion is in helping people uh, be healthy and and perform. Um, Patagonia's passion is in wilderness preservation. Um, So they had big purpose. They both had big big purpose purpose, associated with the organization. And do you think you would have worked for a company that didn't have a big purpose? Um, probably not. Um, I, I have to hinge myself. Even in my consulting today, I will, I will ask people, what's your, what's your long arc, I call it? And they're like, oh, our strategy, arc? our mission statement? No, no, I don't want to know your mission statement. I want to know your long arc. And uh, do you have a personal long arc? Well, yeah, but it's let me frame it a little bit. Um, okay, 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 okay. And it's how I worked at Patagonia, and it's how I worked at Under Armour, and it's how I advise clients today. And I, I don't have another way of saying it uh, other than to quote Martin Luther King. When he said, hey, the arc of uh, history is long, but it bends toward justice. Well, in that, and I use that whenever I'm talking to staff or to new clients, because that's not a mission statement. (laughs) That's like a real point of view. Mm. Like, you know that he believes that justice is going to come. It's not a goal. It's not a quarterly statement, earning statement. It is like mankind achieving something. It's going to happen. It's going to take a long time. It might take 200 years. But that doesn't change the power of that arc, right? It It is clear and you know, immutable truth. Yes. Companies don't have that. They have goals and mission statements. So always when I work, yeah, you asked me what's mine. Mine is if I'm going to work, am I going to leave the world in a better place with lower impact? Can I take everything I know in material science and in people management, uh, in process management, 
and wherever I work, try and point it toward a healthier earth that's gonna support us in the long haul. Can I do that? Sort of that's my long arc, like sustainability. And I work more directly in what I call circularity these days. Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? What's that mean? Um, because in materials are a lot of the impacts on the world, if they're either going to go into what we call natural systems, this is borrowed from Bill McDonough, um, who probably is the father of the term sustainability, if, if you uh, know that history. But anyway, um, you're either going to get two systems. You're either going to get in a natural system where you make things that degrade back to, you know, in natural systems. Or they're in technical systems, technical loops, where you take a like a polyester molecule or something, a very highly refined, high-level molecule, polymer, and you try and keep it at that high level as long as you can. You reuse it over and over and over again. One or the other of those two solutions you have to work within when you're working with materials if you're going to reduce the impact of all the stuff we buy makes on the earth and so as a material scientist i would call myself that i try and get stuff into one of those two processes for real legit and that's become my life's work Uh, and what i find though is that that's in no way inconsistent with successful businesses and in fact it drives most of the successful businesses that i now look at are getting more creative, having smarter choices, being more relevant in the market by being, by coming up with what I call the more elegant solution to a customer's problem. People respond to things because they're cool. Yeah. Oh, that's really smart. That's really cool. Yeah. Rarely are they making the decision, I'm going to buy this because you know, it has a lower environmental footprint. But if it's really cool and it's a great product and it has a lower environmental footprint, oh, yeah, that company's got it together. Yeah, I like them. Um, and this is, to me, just become a requirement of business today. Mm-hmm. Now I understand why your biology degree came in. Now I'm, I'm, you're educating me and I'm, I'm understanding the connection now. Randy, yeah. could we could we fast forward a little bit and talk? We'll just kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the health scare that you had over the last. I, I don't know, was it a year or two years? When was? No, it was um, eight years ago, twenty fourteen. Oh, so, okay, yeah. okay. I didn't know the timing. I just know it was impactful. Would you be comfortable sharing that that story and and the impact? Yeah, it's interesting. My wife and I talked about this beforehand. He said, you going to be open about your health situations? I said, sure. Why not? So, Thank you. Here we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had, um, I used to be a distance runner. Um, and I was running 45, 60 miles a week for the last 15, 18 years before uh, one morning I was out for a run. And I didn't feel right. And something didn't feel right. But I finished my run. (laughs) 
and uh, went to <laughs> work. Up and I didn't run. feel right all didn't feel right all day. And uh, had uh, I was relatively new at Under Armour. I had been there six months uh, as their head of material innovation, and um, and that's in Baltimore. And Baltimore has the most impressive uh, medical. Uh, capabilities of any city I've ever been in in the world. Yes. And so that night I called my wife at the end of work and I said, hey, I'm going to go have this checked out. She said, should I come over? And I said, no, I'll just go check it out. So I went over to the emergency room at Johns Hopkins and it started a series of tests and that was at 6 p.m. And by 3 p.m. I was checked into the, 3 a.m. I was checked into the hospital in the in the heart patient ward. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they had discovered that I, about half my heart was not getting blood. Oof. And, uh, but I was still passing every stress test and uh, it took a long time for them to, to discover it. In fact, I had to keep insisting that something is wrong. Really? <laughs> yeah. You knew your um, body well enough. Yeah. And they're like, no, you're fine. You just like, you just took a stress test and you blew it out of the water. I go, I was telling you, I don't feel right. So they finally did a, um, um, I can't remember what kind it is, but they, they actually dye your blood and they can watch it through the stress test. And the guy's eyes lit up and he said, oh my God, half your heart's not working. And um, so I got checked in and they tried to do stints and that didn't work um, because they were in a bad spot. I ended up being in the hospital for 13 days uh, and got a double bypass surgery. Um, wow. a few days after the surgery, the, the uh, surgeon came up, he was very forthcoming and he said, you know, your surgery didn't go as well as we would like. And, uh, he was nervous, um, but honest. And he said, it just went on for a long time and you can't keep somebody in that state for too long. So it was like seven and a half hours or something. Like oh that. my goodness. And he said, so you did your part. You came in, um, you know, without a heart attack, but you're leaving essentially with all the symptoms of a heart attack um, because we couldn't keep all the muscles in your heart alive. And and he said, you're going to have impacts from that. You know, you'll be fine. You'll recover like a good heart patient. You're healthy. Uh, Your pipes are relatively clean. That's amazing. You had a blockage in one area, but the rest of your pipes are clean. So you're in good, good shape, but you're going to have issues. And this is when he was trying to warn me about going back to work too soon and things like that. And, uh, it really is heart surgery is very, very difficult. Um, every doctor that I've talked to says, you know, it's still experimental surgery. We shouldn't do it. We only do it because Mm -hmm. we have to. But it's and you're you're it's really difficult. Up. Yeah, I mean, like cool. opening up. Yeah, he goes. It's one of the most invasive surgeries there is, and it's filled with complications. And you're going to come out of it with problems. We all know that. We just don't know which ones. Could be any of two hundred different things could could go wrong. So for me, um, he said one of them, and you're going to notice it is that you have a lot of what we might call mini strokes or little teeny strokes where blood clots, small blood clots start to add up and over time 
and as you're, um, you know, in that surgery for a long time, you have a lot of those. And those build up into not really strokes, but people describe it as sort of a fogginess uh, that comes out. And generally, you recover and you're fine, but you're, you're going to feel it. And I came out, and on the other, there were other issues. I had like six or seven different issues that I won't get into, but this fogginess uh, was the biggest one that I, I dealt with. And then I felt fine. I wanted to go back to work after a couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Under Armour, by the way, to their credit, just was like, no, you, you come back when you're ready. <laughs> um, don't worry about it. And they've done that with every person I've ever met who had a medical condition. It's a wonderful company. Um, but uh, when I did go back to work, I only went in for half a day. First day, I had a couple of meetings. And it was like um, sitting on the bow of a boat with the wave pouring over you. Uh, really? I couldn't. I was like underwater with input, and I wait. Uh, can, can we pause? That? I'm trying to like imagine that. Okay, so all this input is coming in, and you can't process it. Yeah, you don't realize that normally you take all that input, which is something you don't even think of. But in my state, I couldn't just experience all of that and pull out of it the things I needed to pay attention to, it was just like getting flooded and overwhelmed. Oh my gosh. And I couldn't process it. This idea that I couldn't even process the world that I was just sitting in. And it was just a meeting. Oh my gosh. Um, Did you have a panic attack? Were you like, what's happening? No, I just was very confused. Like, what is happening? <laughs> um, but no, I didn't panic. Um, I was old enough. You know, um, my staff would always ask me this, and, and um, it's one of the things I always use in coaching uh, younger people, um, especially when they're panicking. Um, I try and tell them sometimes deliberately, but sometimes not directly like this, but sometimes I will actually say to them, Hey, you're okay. You're not going to die. And, uh, you know, you have to be careful about how you would say that to somebody, but uh, in essence, you tell them that you're going to be fine. Uh, and, and relay to them that I know that because I have been through, you know, business failures, uh, medical, uh, catastrophes, um, you know, I was a climber, you know, real dangerous situations that you work your way out of and you come out the other side and you're okay. You're going to be fine. In fact, you can know that you're going to be fine. You can actually sit here right now and say, no, you know, just because you got a bad review at work or something, what's going on in your head is your old brain is telling you, oh, gosh, I got I got a bad review. I, I could lose my job. If I lose my job, I could lose my paycheck. And if I lose my paycheck, I'm not going to be able to buy groceries or have a place to sleep. And I'll starve to death out on the street. Right. That's what your right. old brain is telling you. Totally. Yes. <laughs> Objectively, none of that is true. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, 
But here's what else I'm here to tell you. Even if that's all true, you're not going to starve to death. And uh, so either way, you're going to be okay. It might be different. You might have to be inconvenienced for a while, but you will be okay. And I'm just telling you as an older person, I've been through all those things. I can pretty much tell you. It's not going to be fun, but you'll be all right. And, anyway, that, and so are, that, you, are you practicing that in the moment? Like you're like, yes. I'm confused, but I'm going to be okay. Yes. And that understanding, um, which, um, gosh, I could go all over on this, is partly training. Um, a good friend um who has been a coach to me for years uh david allen are you familiar with his I'm work not. no okay uh he wrote the book getting things done oh yes 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 yeah um and the idea of uh kind of assessing everything uh in a in a system um writing down all the um not just writing down, but processing all the things that you have to deal with uh, and turning them into, hey, is this a, is this the next action or a project? Uh, if it's a project, something I can't do right now, put it on a project list, come back to it, review it, deal with it, deal with what's important. That very pragmatic system that he teaches right. is just this in a nutshell. It is, it is saying, okay, here's all this mess, but I have these projects and I've agreed with myself I'm going to do just these things today or in the moment. I'm not going to worry about all the stuff that's on that list because I have it in a system and I'm going to review it regularly. That helps me in the moment like I was in this moment. It's going, whoa, I just need to see what I need to do next. You know, so uh, you what's had my a next process. Action? Yeah, you had like a process to rely on. That was ingrained. I didn't realize wow. how useful That's it was. That's amazing. Well, it turns out that process was the most valuable tool I had at my fingertips as I dealt with this because my old normal systems for how I just managed my work and projects and actions, I just had to step up the, the depth with which I use those tools. So to this day... I use because I'm still foggy. Um, you would never. That's I reached crazy. a plateau. Yeah, I reached yeah. a plateau where I definitely improved, but I'm I stopped improving after about eight, eighteen months after my surgery, and um, I'm literally not the same person that I was then before. Um, like how so? Like a, well, like, the best way would, I have of describing it. Say, maybe? Uh, at this point, years later, she totally agrees. But um, at that time, everybody I talked to would be in total denial. And the reason I actually agreed to do this interview is if there's somebody else who goes through heart surgery and I can give them some um, assurance, um, that's why I'm doing this, to be honest. Love it. Um, I love that. Um, but I, I'm a skier, uh, and, uh, I was skiing one day with a good friend in, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and, you know, we were with friends and, you know, you're always talking and jabbering. But at one point he and I were alone on a ski lift 
And he had had a couple of strokes a couple of years earlier and really struggled with them. They were massive strokes, but he came through it. And we're sitting on the chairlift and he was aware of my heart surgery and the fact that I struggled a little bit. And he turned to me and he said, hey, so how do you like the new Randy? No way. And I was like, what? He says, how do you like the new Randy? And I go, how do you know? He goes, because of my strokes, I know. And I'm like, no one had ever framed it that bluntly. So can I ask you, is there a grieving that you have to go through? Is there an acceptance, an anger, yes. a denial? A, yes. Mostly denial. <laughs> <laughs> About 90% denial. Uh, no, I'll get through it. Uh, I'll be, you know, I'll get all my function back. Um, and, you know, he was very helpful because I was probably in the, in the peak of my struggle with it when he said that. And he was trying to be helpful because he's like, yeah, hey, that guy's not coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you're never going to be the Randy that you were before. But it's fine. The new Randy is great. You'll be just fine. But just don't expect to be the old one. Well, that's a breakthrough for me. Um, and I'm not. There's, I still struggle with memory. I struggle with uh, uh, handling. Uh, I just came back from a consulting gig in Boston last night, and I was exhausted at the end of it. And uh, unlike you know, a, a younger person who hadn't been through it, it would be fine. It wasn't a big deal. But for me, I was absolutely exhausted. I had used every ounce of my energy. Um, and now it's just coping. And I take copious notes and I, I have Evernote open all the time. And when I talk to somebody, I always go back to the Evernote to find out what I was talking with them about before. So I sound like I have no issues with continuity. When I give speeches now, I never can prepare because if I try and remember it, I can't do it. I will lose those words. I can't re- I can't grasp those words. So I create an outline that's just like five words on a list, and I speak from my knowledge of the topic off the cuff. And so people think of me as a really great speaker these days because I'm not doing PowerPoint prepared slides. I'm just talking, and they love it. And so, but I'm not the Randy I was. Like, I would have memorized every word and said exactly what it was I wanted to say. And now I have to get up on stage and wing it and evaluate later going, gosh, I didn't do this. I didn't say that. And have people tell you, God, that was great. Um, So it's different. And and my friend Stevie, uh, I didn't mention his name, I... I just owe him a great debt because he, he, he's the first person that, that kind of called it out bluntly. And from that moment on, it was more like, okay, I'm just going to live with this. But how do I be my best self even with this literally handicap? Yeah. And it's turned into not a handicap. It's turned into a more concise way of working. Um, I don't, I don't, um, I try and decomplicate things. 
simplify, even in my really big consulting work or in my big work at places like Under Armour, I would try and get it to the long arc. What's that? What's Ugh. that big thing we're after? And can we get clarity here? And just cut through all the BS and all of the politics because I just really couldn't cope with all of those details. So it's turned into a way of being much more concise in my thinking. That's actually beneficial. And lo and behold, that became the secret of the most of my actual material development work too. Because really? like what? it turns out that constraints are really, really powerful. Uh, constraints drive solutions. Constraints make you think of different ways of doing things. When you have nothing but choice, you get stymied. That's right. Like, think about how many channels we can choose from for watching TV now. I'm like, I don't want this many channels. I can't pick one. Yeah. So I'm totally unafraid of constraints anymore. I'm like, yeah, we'll work it out. It's actually going to be clear. I love the clarity of, of being simple. When things start getting complicated, you know, I, 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 I don't want to do it anymore. Or I got to find the simpler way. Now, the danger people say is, oh, you're always living in the clouds. I'm like, well, not really. You know, I, I, I think it's a level of truth that you're after that makes all of the detail work underneath it much easier. So it's been, in a weird way, useful. Yes. I love how you tied it back to the long arc, too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Are you going to write a book? Oh, gosh. This is a, a topic that comes up a lot with friends and my family. And um, I'd have to have a, a, a co-writer that would help me plow through it. And because, like, my gut sense is, no, I should not take on that additional burden. I won't, I won't cope with it well. Well, it's good, the, good to listen to that. Yeah. But if I could find somebody to help me through it, yeah. It would, be, it would be good. Randy, this story has been like, I, I, I don't often know the wonderful stories I'm going to get, but this one, I've just been like speechless. It's it, <laughs> just even hearing your, your voice and energy is just so calming and grounding. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that you were on today. I love this concept of the long arc and it's been incredibly inspirational. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, you're most welcome. I hope it's of some use to your listeners. Uh, I know it will be. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. <laughs>